Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. All right, welcome to another episode of Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm your host today. So today's episode is going to be fun. Uh, as they all are, but this is someone that I've been trying to land in here for an interview for quite a while. Someone I'm super excited to have on here, but I want to do things a little bit differently today. So before I introduce our host, or I'm sorry, our guest, without saying your name, I just want you to um, just kind of tell us where you're where you're located at now and just kind of throw out a few sentences because i want to see if our listeners that are in the recovery community i want to see if they pick up on a voice here and see if something sounds familiar all right well i am calling in from san diego and my favorite snack is spicy chili mango so if you truly know who this is that completely gave it away just saying (laughs) <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a couple seconds to think about that. Feel free to pause your radio, rewind 30 seconds and, and go ahead and try and see if you can pick up on that voice. But if you haven't gotten it yet, we have none other than Odette from the recovery elevator podcast. If you follow recovery elevator, which is one of my favorite podcasts, Uh, something that I've completely binged and we'll talk more about that. But if you follow recovery elevator, Paul had, he started everything and he did years on that podcast and I actually had him on as a previous guest. And then in, I think probably about a year, year and a half ago, you would obviously know that a lot better. Uh, Odette took over as the host. Uh, and it's, it's just been, it didn't skip a beat. Everything has been awesome. Got like a little bit of a Spanish flair to it now. And there's, there's like some cool bilingual aspects, which I'm Puerto Rican. I don't even speak Spanish. So sometimes even I get lost on that. Um, but it's just, it's, it's so cool and I love it. And it's, it's just, it's, it's awesome. I didn't think that I could actually listen to a podcast that would switch up hosts and me, I, I it, it really didn't lose a beat. It was just completely perfect. It was an awesome transition. You carry the message so, so well. And it's it's just absolute perfection doing Recovery Elevator, just all the justice and just making it work. It's actually, I binge podcasts and I usually listen chronological order, but Recovery Elevator is actually one of those that I'm actually completely caught up. Like my podcast world is back in 2019, um, but Recovery Elevator, I think the, I, I only haven't gotten the last like four or five episodes. So I've had a chance to listen to a lot of your interviews, which is how I knew about you uh, recently. And I was just like super excited. So before we just talk too, too much about Recovery Elevator, because I want to let you explain it as well and everything that you have involved with that. Why don't you go ahead by just uh, introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and you know what I would say what you do for a living, but whatever you got going on, how, however you want to word that. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, Migs. Um, usually I'm on the other end of the mic, so this is a total treat. Um, I am Mexican. I'm 34 years old and I was born and raised in Guadalajara, Jalisco, which is like the belly button of Mexico in terms of geographical location. Um, So I speak English because I went to an all English school that my parents 
gratefully paid for. That's why I, uh, I'm very fluent. I learned when I was really young and I never thought that I'd end up living in the States, but, uh, the man who is now my husband is American. He's from North Carolina. We met at a wedding and that's kind of the long story short of how I ended up being in the United States. Like I said, I'm in San Diego. I live with my husband, our two dogs, our two kids and recovery elevator and work in this field is actually my part-time job. I have a full-time job on the operations side of things. I'm an operations manager at a large real estate company. And between that and my own recovery, I love fitness. I love being outside. Um, got a lot to do with the kids, walking the dogs. There's a lot going on every day. So yeah, I mean, that's a little bit about me and it's just great to be here. Recovery is a big part of my life, even though I don't think about it as much now as I used to when I was early, early in my recovery process, because I have been on this journey for quite some time now, but uh, it does live kind of at the center of everything that happens in my life. For sure. I, I completely understand that. And I think too, and I can't speak for you, but I know at least for me, just um, doing the podcast, doing the interviews, and I also have the Facebook group. I find it that I'm surrounded so much by recovery that I'm pretty much talking about recovery almost 24 seven, even, even without necessarily it just being my own, I'm just always talking about something recovery. So it is just, it's become just like that part of my life. And I don't want to say it's like taken over my life, but it's such, it's just such a front focus of my life. And uh, it's, it's just so cool because even when I can't make it to meetings or do any of the stuff that I would normally do in the beginning before I had all these outlets, I'm just surrounded by so many people. And uh, to quote Paul, what he used to say in the early episodes, um, you know, just having these interviews keeps me sober for another hour, two hours, or like I told you, sometimes three or four hours, uh, depending on how long these interviews go, especially with some of my later ones. So I just, I love having that. And it's crazy how how much we are similar as far as like our age and our sobriety, because I don't know your exact birthday, but I'm 34. I just turned 34 a few months ago in August, and my sobriety date is also 2018. So we were born in the same year, and we claim the same year for our sobriety dates as well. So that's just that right there is like super cool. And that's why like when I heard when I heard you on the podcast, like I originally actually remember hearing you as a guest in the early episodes. And so when he was doing that whole cool, like teaser thing of wait till you see who the, the new host is going to be and this and that, like I had a few people in mind. Cause I think, I think you were on the show, what, two, maybe three times prior, prior to hosting. Yeah. So I, I had in mind a few people, I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be you, but I knew it was going to be someone that probably had returned someone that he probably built up a rapport with in those aspects. But I remember hearing your story and honest to God, uh, when I heard your story, I think the second, the second or third interview, when I heard one of the later ones, I remember thinking like, I wanted to actually reach out to you to see if I can get you as a guest, but the, the last name wasn't on there. And I was like, shit, I don't know how to just find an Odette from California. That's like probably trying to find like <laughs> a Bob from Texas or something like that. It's like, it's just going to be absolutely impossible. Uh, so it was just really cool when you became the host and started giving a last name and more information. Um, or I don't even know if I had your last name. I think I just emailed Paul and was like, Hey, can you link me with Odette? And 
you know, it was just, it was so cool to be able to get you on here as well. I, like I said, I just love everything recovery elevator is doing. So why don't you go ahead and tell us, I know your, your story starts off around the age of 13. Uh, so as much detail as you want to go in, why don't you kind of summarize the first 12 or 13 years of your life until that part of your story really kicks in? Yeah, of course. Um, so my story actually starts with food as my main drug of choice. Um, I was, I had an amazing childhood. I had a lot going in my favor and I'm still really close to my, my family as I've been forever. Um, there was definitely, definitely a lot of emotional dysfunction in the family. You know, my dad's an alcoholic and he's been sober now for, I think he just hit 12 years. Um, so there was another, a lot of another little... similarities in our life real quick. Cause <laughs> my dad has like 13 or 14 years clean. It's, it's crazy how much our stories click. That's so crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was harder for me. It's been harder for me to reconcile a lot of the stuff that I've had to work on because it is more than anything, emotional dysfunction. You know, we were a family that always looked put together, no big problems, no violence when it came, when it came to my dad's drinking, you know, he was a super present fun dad. Uh, I have great memories with him. I did see him pretty intoxicated, but I was much older then. And it was more like being his designated driver, but never, never these like yets that are usually what catapult people into change. Never these like someone it was hitting at home or car crashing, or, you know, it, it was just such a great life. And I didn't know anything different. You know, I didn't know that I couldn't talk to my emotions to people, which is a big thing that really affected me and like really made me push forward in my, I'll talk about my eating disorder, which was not bulimia, not anorexia, more like an oscillation between the two. It's called actually called Ednos because it's not otherwise specified. So even my eating disorder doesn't have like a name because I just kind of went from one end of the spectrum to another, depending on what I could get away with. But anyway, um, I, I just didn't know any better. I'm the oldest of three. And I didn't know that uh, what boundaries were. I didn't know that when my dad said, there's no room to be upset here, you have three seconds to smile. I didn't know that that was extremely unhealthy because then I wasn't learning how to cope with all of my negative emotions that I was clearly having. So there was a lot of now, when he would say that, though, was he trying to like cheer you up? Because it, it sounds like when you would say that to a kid, you would think it sounds like your heart is in the right place and you're trying to cheer him up. A hundred percent. You're just I didn't even I, that's something I didn't even think of, because I feel like that's something I would like say to my kids. And now when you like when you hear it from someone out loud, it's like, oh, shit, I didn't even really think of that. I would think I'm just trying to cheer him up and get him happy again. A hundred percent. You know, parenting is super hard. It's the same as the typical example is, is like, if your kid comes home from school and is like, nobody wanted to sit with me at the lunch table, pretty much 90% of sensitive adults response is like, oh, don't worry, try sitting with someone else tomorrow. Apparently, from what I've learned, the proper response is, oh man, that must've been really hard. That must've sucked that nobody wanted to sit with you. It's that validation that, like you said, everyone's best intentions, um, even now, being a friend, I've changed so much. It's validating versus giving advice or dismissing, even though it's a kind type of dismissing, you know, there was a lot of that for me growing up. So I grew up, uh, with kind of a couple of narratives, one of them being, 
uh, I think I'm inadequate. I'm like, if I'm not supposed to be sad, why am I feeling sad? There must be something wrong. And to be the other one was, um, I need to earn love by being perfect. And this was never something that was directly said to me by my parents or anyone around me, but I was a pretty overachieving kid. And I started to notice, you know, if I get good grades, my parents are happy. If I do what my parents say, they seem happy. You know, it was my brain when we're young, our brains are so they just take, they take information and like, believe it as it is with no context. I was like, Oh, this is an easy equation. You do what people say. People are happy. You're probably happy. You know, there was no what does make me happy? There was no questioning of that. There was no questioning of authority, no boundaries. So it's crazy because my story is more like death by a thousand cuts. And that really got me to a place when I did need the help of even questioning, do I really need help? Is there really something wrong? Like I almost have micro doses of trauma that ended up making this huge ball of trauma. And then I just lost my shit. So it was really hard for me to even accept that I potentially had a problem because nothing big ever happened. It was like I said, more of these ongoing repetitive patterns and me feeding that narrative of like perfection, perfection. Um, I started binging when I was pretty young, not intensely, but I noticed that I would eat in secret, which is a pretty red flag in both uh, alcoholism and with food or any drug, like doing it in secret instead of just eating when everyone's eating around the table, right? Like starting to store food, starting to stash it, eating it in the closet, getting rid of wrappers, very similar behaviors that we hear with drinking too, when people go to the garage and have a drink and throw it away in the recycling bin. So there's a really strong parallel there. Um, now real then, quick, do you want to explain I, to our listeners what, um, what exactly is like anorexia and bulimia because for someone like me who doesn't know I don't personally have a relationship with anybody that has dealt with those problems and if they have it's not a conversation that I've ever had with anyone not something that I know anybody that's come forward with so what I think of bulimia I think of you know just kind of like what you see on the movies like or the tv shows growing up there would always be that episode of like you know, the stereotypical like cheerleader who was going into the bathroom stalls after lunch and making herself throw up. And it's like, so that's all I know when it comes to bulimia is just like you eat a lot, you make yourself throw up so you don't gain the weight and that's it. But I don't really know exactly what anorexia is. I just thought that was like someone who was just, I guess, to be blunt, like unhealthily skinny, but I don't know how that really happens. I don't know if it's just from starving yourself. But what exactly are for for someone who has the experience, like what exactly are those cases and what's really the difference and what one would be versus the other to have an idea of how you kind of fell in the middle there? 100%. Yeah. So technically, people with anorexia, which is are people that decide not to eat, are people who are restrictors. And people who are bulimic, which is excess of food and then purging that those people are considered permitters. So maybe if you, this is so different for everyone, but if you link that, if you are a restrictor and anorexic, you know, you don't deserve, you feel like you don't deserve to take up space to be in this world. So you're basically shrinking your body in a way to where you just want to disappear because you don't feel the worthiness that is kind of like the very stereotypical 
explanation of what's going on in your brain. You know, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be heard. Cause even these people that are super skinny, you see that for the most part, a lot of the times they are, they have really baggy clothes on, you know? So it's not like I'm wanting to be skinny to show it off. It's I'm actually wanting to be skinny so that I'm invisible. Right. So if you, if you're doing it because you want to show off your curves and look pretty, this is why this is not a vain disease. Then you would actually dress according to your body. But a lot of women dealing with anorexia who are extremely thin dress under layers so that people don't see this. Right. So it's, it's so complex. We could talk about this for a long time. Yeah, but and it I actually like sounds explaining. sad too, because like when you wear the baggy clothes, it's almost like there's, I'm already again, without knowing really how any of that works, I'm already picking up on some of the similarities between some of those, um, I guess we can say isms to like uh, alcohol and the traits. It's like, you know, you don't, like you said, you don't feel worthy. You don't want to take up space. So you're not eating and you want to make yourself smaller. And it's like the same thing, like when you don't feel like you're, you're worthy and you don't want to deal with your own problems. It's like when you drink yourself to think that you don't have those problems. And it's like the same way you're hiding under the baggy clothes is also yep. the same way someone hides behind their emotions with just drinking. So they don't have to face that reality again. So it's like, I'm already picking up on some of those, some of those similarities. And now it, it also makes more sense why it's something that mainly is probably starts off at such a young age before someone would find drugs or alcohol, or even if they're just trying to stay away from that, if they don't have access to it, it, it starts to almost make a lot more sense. Like you said, it's not something where, Oh, I just want to be skinny and pretty. So I'm just going to keep doing this. Uh, it's, it's more of an emotional thing. And it actually, it's, it's very actually sad when you think about it that way too. Cause it's, it shows a lot of the signs of like early emotional issues for, for kids. Yeah. hundred percent. It is extremely sad. Um, way too many people die of this and eating disorders are the mental health disease with least funding uh, in America. So it's, it's crazy because a lot of people are dying from it. It's definitely not a, a vanity disease. And then uh, in terms of bulimia, you know, usually bulimics don't, don't mind the attention and, and like taking up space, you know, so it's a different uh, type of personality usually. So that also kind of effed me because I'm like, well, I'm not one, I'm not the other, but it, for me, it, a lot of it was linked with control, which is the case for a lot of people with an eating disorder that um, whatever you do, whether it's restricting or binging and purging, it's a sense of like, I can't control what's going on in my life, but I can control this. I can control what goes in my body and what doesn't, or I can have this binging and purging episode where I feel in control and I know exactly what I'm doing. So it's, it's very it's very complex. Um, I also have a body type where there is a ton of stigma and stereotypes about what these people look like. There's a lot of fat people with eating disorders. There's a lot of normal sized bodied people that have an eating disorder. And I tended to fall in that category. So I guess why I didn't oscillate to the anorexic side and stayed there is because I didn't want anyone to know that was one of the things like my dad was the sick one. I wasn't the sick one. So I almost, if I felt like I was losing a ton of weight, then I would like, okay, I'll eat again, but then I'll purge if I'm overly full. I just, I wanted it to not draw attention to the fact that I was struggling and my brain somehow decided that if I just, all of these disorders have different behaviors. So for me, it was more like a menu of behaviors and I could just pick according to what was going in my life. And 
nobody would know. Nobody would know that I was suffering in silence. So it, it worked for me for many years. It worked for me. So I was about 15, 13, 15 when I started to notice. Um, and at age 25 is when I checked into rehab for my eating disorder. So it took me 10 years of experimenting with it, it saving my life because it, it did it keeping me distracted from what was going on at home. Um, and it was hard, you know, because I am a daughter of an alcoholic and self-sabotaging is one of my biggest traits. You know, I, I got accepted to the college that I wanted to get into, but then I um, decided to pull out at two years in, uh, I would break up with boyfriends who were super nice to me. I didn't know why, I don't know why, but I don't, I don't want to be with this person anymore. This was before I even knew that like self-sabotaging was one of my most ingrained traits. Like I didn't believe back to the worthiness that things could be good for me. I didn't. And then when they were, I wanted to make up a problem around them. So those things are so beyond the bottle for me or beyond any behavior. Like that's been the real work for me, really seeing what my default is when I, when I'm not in recovery, my default is pretty destructive. And that's the case for a lot of adult children of alcoholics. So once I got better from my eating disorder, the main reason was I wanted to save my marriage because my husband didn't know I have an eating disorder until some time in. And I wanted to have kids. Like I did truly want a family. I was just really sick. So that was a big why for me to get better. Did from you my get married disorder. young? I got married at 24. I think okay. I was 24. Yeah. So a year into our marriage, uh, I had my bottom. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired and checked into rehab. Um, did he know you were out. dealing with this? He didn't. So that was a big part of our crisis. I was so scared to share with anybody. I had a therapist in Mexico, but I kind of, you know, you can outsmart your therapist if you decide to do so. I'm always like, don't waste your money. Only go if you're going to be honest or else it's a total money. (laughs) Yeah. So I was definitely doing that thing where I was cruising. My parents could tell some things, but I was just, oh, it's fine. You know, I, I was outsmarting, um, a lot of people around me like that. We get, we get pretty smart when you want to defend your addiction so hard, we, we figure it out. So my husband did find out. So we had a, our first marriage crisis came with uh, me going to rehab because obviously our trust was breached. He had no idea. He was very supportive and also very, now, how does a spouse find out something like that? Because when, when it comes to typical like substances, you know, you can find bottles in places that they don't belong. You can find an empty drug baggie somewhere. You can find things that's like, you know, this is, this is, it is what it is. And like, why is this here? Why is there an empty beer under the bed when there's beer in the fridge? And that's what normal people do. But like, how does, how does a spouse find out about something like this? Are they like accidentally like walking in on you purging yourself or they They finding empty food wrappers somewhere and it's not adding up? Like what, how does that happen? All of that can happen. So all of those that you said totally can happen. And also the sicker you are in your eating disorder. And I think in any addiction, I was so irritable. We would go out to restaurants. I couldn't pick food. Like it gets pretty intense because the control is so strong. Like John would be like, why do you never want to eat at, why don't you want to like have a bite of my pizza? Like just have a bite, you know, like it was a lot of those little things, uh, paired with sometimes, yeah, maybe hearing like throwing up, Oh, I'm sick. I have a stomach ache and like kind of putting two and two together. Like, wait, she never wants to eat the food that we buy. She has to make it herself. She's pretty intense about it. You know, it's just putting like these puzzle pieces together of like something's off with this behavior 
around food, bringing our own food to picnics instead of just eating what people were eating. Um, so yeah. And he, that's how you can found out that he did find out by me having like a total meltdown and like saying it. Um, and when you're going through this, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. I just want to make sure like I, I'm because a lot of these questions are me just trying to learn this for myself as well. So totally. are you or whether for you or for someone in general, are they trying to hide this or are they trying to continue to try and pretend to look normal um, by trying to obtain a certain body weight? Because you said it's not vain. So it's not like, all right, I don't want to have this roll on my stomach. I don't want to have this hang over my jeans. That's not really the case because you're not looking at it vainly. But are you trying to just maintain an exact pound of body weight? So that way it's like, oh, this will look normal because if I weigh 105 pounds every day, then I don't look like I'm getting unhealthy or I don't look like I'm gaining weight. Or is it just purely based off of how you're emotionally feeling that day that determines kind of how you treat the situation? Like how, what are, what are you doing to yeah. like, I guess, like I can maintain? Yeah. I can only speak for myself, but um, because a lot of people do get uberly skinny and there's also body dysmorphia. So they're losing weight, but they look themselves in the mirror and they don't look the way that they look. They look at themselves maybe 20 pounds heavier than they are. Like it, it is like a mind fuck of a disease. So for me, um, it was like trying to be at this ideal weight for some reason. I don't know why my brain picked this. Sometimes I wish, and this is literally addictive thinking that I would have just gone straight to booze because with food now I've had to relearn how to have a relationship with food with booze. You can just quit it. That's it. I'll never have to see you again for sure. And with food, it's like, wow, now I have to like what does even, how, how do you stack days in eating disorder world? Like there's no chips and shit because you're like constantly, you could fall back into a behavior where like, sometimes I notice that like, man, I really am thinking about, you should go on a diet. Like, it's just very sneaky for me. It was, I had this ideal weight that whatever that weight was that I wanted to get there. And then every time you get there, you think you're going to be happy or something. It sounds so dumb, but like, you're not. I, and all of these obsessive behaviors around it. So I would weigh myself in the morning, every morning, take my clothes off. I would like obsess about what type of scale it was. I would only eat certain foods. I would, you know, it, everything it was, it's all consuming. It's a lot of work, like many addictions. It's all I was thinking about. It was all, what am I going to eat next? How am I going to hide the food so that, you know, it's so much work. But for me, the goal was be at a certain weight, then you will feel loved, valued, worthy, whatever, all the things like booze, all the things that the weight ideal weight promised me never delivered. Like I never felt at my thinnest, I was probably my most miserable. And somehow, even though I knew that I, I, I didn't know any, any other way to be, I didn't know how to not be in a diet or how to eat normally. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, I didn't know. I didn't know how to live without my eating disorder, which was crazy. So when I went to treatment, I not only did like treatment and it was outpatient cause it was, I was still working, but I also is usually paired with a nutritionist that is not like a nutritionist of how to lose weight, but like an eating disorder nutritionist who knows these thoughts, these behaviors, you know, like I would only eat after a certain time. They know all these crazy rules that people with eating disorders make up. And I had to be like, you tell me what to do give me the nutrition plan or whatever, because I don't trust myself. I don't know what eating normal is. I don't know what being hungry is. I don't know what being starved is. So I had to, because I wanted to, that's why people with eating disorders don't get better because if you really don't want to, 
you're not going to do it. And I really wanted it to, I just didn't know how to. So I said, just tell me what to do. I'll put the shit in my mouth. Like whatever you say that I need to do, but you need to give me a map because I have no idea what normal eating is. And for and, sure. And, and that's, am- that's scary too, because so my mom is an overeater and she deals with that a lot. She, she gets really bad overweight. Then she'll want to go to the gym, try and eat healthy. And you know, when I was, when I was actively drinking, um, and like when I first sobered up, you know, if, if anybody, including my mom would say like, I have an overeating problem in my mind, I would think like ignorantly, like what the fuck is wrong with you? Just stop eating this bullshit ass food. And then you'll be fine. Like I have bigger problems to worry about. I'm trying not to drink today. But it wasn't until I got a better grasp on my sobriety and then could have normal conversations, um, especially with my mom, to understand how serious an eating disorder is. Because like you said just a couple minutes ago, it's like when you have an alcohol problem or you're addicted to cocaine or meth or heroin or any hard substances, like you don't need those to live. You know, I just don't. I don't want to say I just don't drink beer like it's easy, but if I continue working my program, I keep doing what I got to do to stay in my recovery. All right. I don't drink beer. I stay good for the day. You know, if someone doesn't do drugs, they're good for the day. Like they, they stack another day. But like you said, how do you even stack a day and count it good when you're, when you have an eating disorder, because you have to eat to stay alive. It's like, imagine like, I don't, I would be completely fucked if someone came to me and said, Look, I know you have a drinking problem, but you have to drink three beers a day, but you can only drink three beers a day. It has to be exactly yes. three because less than three and you'll die more than three and you'll die. And it's like, but you have to stop there. And it's like, I don't even know what I would do. So to have like an eating disorder, it's like, how do you eat just this meal or just eat this healthy meal and then not feel those? Like, I don't even know where I would begin. Cause I mean, just even being a gym rat, I get like that sometimes where it's like, I shouldn't be eating this. And I get mad at myself, but imagine if it was like a real issue. I don't even know how one would cope with that. It's insane. What a great way to put it. Like if someone was like, here's your daily dose of booze that's it a little more you're fucked a little less you're fucked like that is trying to manage this and people who overeat i mean that's the thing that i think that if alcohol has stigma around it alcoholism eating disorders more because there's nothing more shameful than like imagining myself sticking my hand up my throat to throw up like that image of me doing that just disgusts me so much and i did it so many times i had like red knuckles like it's crazy, but you cannot stop. Like when you see fat people, and I say that word because there's so much uh, stigma, even around the word fat, like people are skinny, people are fat. It's just a descriptor. Like when you see fat people eat, we see them with such a different lens. And like you said, just, just stop, you know, just, just stop. Why can you just not buy the bag of Cheetos? You cannot stop the amount of food that fits in this body. You'd be surprised because your your stomach like grows and it's like a muscle. That and wouldn't surprise I, me because I'm a runner. The amount of food I can eat is just like people look at me and they're like, what the, f-? and I'm like, I would be fat if I didn't run. Like, trust it's me. It's insane. It's insane. And it is so sad that we are so judgmental when we see people eating, especially if they have an eating disorder, because it's just like the drinking you cannot stop. It doesn't even taste good. Like the, the binging episodes, you, you're not even tasting the food because it's not about the food the way it's not about the booze. You know, it's not about that. So in that way, they're very similar. 
Luckily I got better. The, the rate of people getting better is, is not bueno. Got better, better enough to even get pregnant. So conceived. And I felt like I was fine for a couple of years. And then when my second kid arrived, I noticed kind of similar thought patterns, but now around booze and booze is totally normalized, especially around wine mommy culture and having two young kids in freaking California where there's a happy hour at every hour, basically even at yoga class, probably. Yeah. Even at yoga class, you can have a beer after, you know? So I noticed that, you know, parenting is extremely triggering. It's like another layer of unknown. And I noticed that that shift into postpartum and motherhood again, put me in a place of like, I feel like I need to control stuff because I have two kids and how am I going to keep them safe? Like, you're not rationally thinking these things, but I could feel the shift of back in that like fear based place compounded with going out drinking and then noticing that I started kind of am I going to drink next the way that Sorry, I you cut out there when for a second gonna... after you noticed what that I started kind of doing the same thing with booze than with food when am I going to drink next before it was when am I going to eat next it just kind of changed from substance to substance it was true like kind of cross addiction, which is extremely normal, right? Because we still need that relief, especially if you haven't done the the work, your brain is just going to latch on to something else. So for me, I started to feel like I was getting fused with alcohol. So I stopped or attempted to stop drinking mainly out of fear because I thought I've done this before. I've gone to treatment. It sucked. Like I've worked so hard. I don't want to do it again. Uh, I was a daily drinker at that point, but never, I was one of those people that people are still like, why did you quit? You never looked like you have a problem. Like no one ever saw me passed out drunk and no one ever, like I never crashed. I never got a DUI, but it felt so similar to the path that I was walking with my eating disorder and knowing my genetic predisposition, knowing that I genuinely think that I just will latch on to anything. I truly believe that about myself. I was just like, oh no, you don't want to do this again. Like you've already done it. Now I have the kids. And it was, it was rough because I truly don't think I had a huge problem but then I tried quitting and I couldn't. So I was like, this is a problem for sure. You can't even like go like do the whole 30. That's how I started attempting, you know, like the whole 30 dry January. And I just really, for me, it's easy to know when I'm doing anything, whether that's drinking or I still sometimes have like mini, you ate too many candy episodes. You know, I don't consider them binging anymore, but I know when I'm doing something to escape and when I'm not, I know. And, and I noticed from the get-go that like, I needed a drink to cope, not to socialize or whatever. You know, I, I knew the intention behind it. It's just the same, no matter what for me. So I just, that's when my alcohol-free journey kind of picked up where my kids were already born. And I just started feeling that same like beast that was like, I'll just find something else to tame it, but it's like still there. So that's kind of when I started on my alcohol-free journey it's sometimes exhausting for me because I do feel like I've been in recovery for years, you know, 10 years, 11 years. And I still, you know, I also struggle with depression. Once I stopped drinking, now the depression was waiting for me. Like that's been my hardest thing. And the depression is same as what we were saying with the food. It's not going to go away. I have to manage it. I have to learn how to live with it. So 
to me now was that something was the food issue also hard um having children because naturally a woman's body is going to go through changes you're going to gain weight so was that also an issue of like I, you know, this isn't, this isn't normal for me. Cause I can only imagine that after you give birth to your first child, that's probably the heaviest you've been in your entire life at that point. Totally. So like, is that, or totally. was there something in your body that was saying, okay, this is acceptable. And you just set like a different bar then, or does that just kind of go together? Yeah. So I do think that for me going into treatment and really being a, uh, it's not always worked for me, but being a good recovery students, like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It really worked for me because I did enough reps to where I knew, like, by the time I got pregnant, I knew like, obviously even a person who doesn't have an eating disorder and gets pregnant, it's like uncomfortable when you're nine months pregnant and you're like, obviously feel huge because you are, but I worked so hard with the negative self-talk and the narrative. And like the main tool for me was disengaging from the eating disorder and having a name, almost like a different person, like this isn't me and putting in all the reps every single day, every single day to where I obviously was having thoughts sometimes. And I still do sometimes, but it's so easy for me to disengage from them. Like that, that has been my main practice in recovery is not expecting for things to go away, but learning that they're not me and that I can engage with them differently because I think for a long time, I hoped, you know, I kept hoping that I wouldn't have those thoughts or those feelings or that I, I wish I was different. I wish I was a normal eater. I wish I would look at people eating and be like, I wish I could just be like them and now even drinking. And it's more like that acceptance and being like, no, you just have to learn how to disengage from that part of you that is there and is probably going to be there. So luckily I kept my work pretty strong after leaving treatment with my therapist, nutritionist, uh, and I've always kind of loved recovery in general. I've always been that girl that picks up like the self-help books. And it's been almost very recent that I'm detaching a little bit from recovery. I don't know if I'm graduating a little bit, but I wanted so much to get better. You know, I was young and I just kept thinking, you know, how much am I, I'm supposed to live what, like 60, 70, 80 years. I can't imagine living in this head that much longer. I'll probably survive. <laughs> like I'll survive. I'm eating, I'm drinking like two glasses of wine a night. And like, I could actually survive like this. Unlike other people who struggle with addiction for many years, I'm sure. But I just, I just didn't want to live that way. I was so drained in my brain that I was just willing to do whatever other people told me to do and then repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that, that I think has just been the key for me, at least that like consistency. And how, how old were you when you had your first kid? 26. Okay. So it was after, cause I was going to ask too, and like, maybe you can shed some light on this too, for like maybe any women specifically that might be dealing with this, like, um, and I know you get this when you interview people, like when you interview like an alcoholic or an addict, sometimes uh, when they get pregnant, they can like as bad as full blown into their addiction as they are, something happens in their brain and in their hearts where it's like they don't do drugs or they don't drink for those nine months. And then the day they give birth, it's right back. And I know you yep. weren't I know you weren't pregnant at the time of dealing with uh, uh, your food issues when they were the worst. But like, have you talked to anyone or heard from any of those, like what, what that's like for someone who's pregnant? Like, because at that point too, that's a little bit different. And that's even more so important because you now have to eat nutritiously for a second person. 
so you really have to be more mindful. You can't go throwing up your nutritional value when you gotta, you gotta bring life into the world. Have you met anybody who like was dealing with that and some of those issues that they might be going through that might help some of our listeners that, you know, might be thinking about that? Yeah. It's just like with drugs and alcohol, you know, a lot of us abstain because having a baby just does that to you. And a lot of people don't, you know, like a lot of people are still purge while they're pregnant or still binge. And it, it, it is truly like what happens with drugs and alcohol. Not everyone is able to quit for that time. And obviously no judgment at all. I was, I had drinks while I was pregnant both times. Uh, the food thing was under control. And also like another, like thing to debunk is like recovery actually means in an eating disorder. And the way that I did it is not really thinking of food as healthy or not, because the more I restricted the unhealthy food, the more I was going to binge on them later. So for me, my full circle recovery has always been about no, I don't, the word junk food doesn't even exist in my house. Like my kids don't hear it, even if they're eating Cheetos, because it's the labeling of the good and bad food that really for someone with an eating disorder triggers them to avoid, like avoid that bad food because it's bad food. Therefore I'm bad, you know? And like, there's a ton of, just like there's uh, media around drinking that makes it feel like it's normal. I have that, those same glasses on for food, like these uh, advertisements of like, you are what you eat. I'm like, that's fucking bullshit. Like, just like, there's so much misconception and wrong information out there about food that really is affecting people negatively, you know, making them attached to these like you're either a good eater or a bad eater, or, you know, like, I'm not supposed to eat this tonight. I was bad last night. I had a burger, the word, the verbiage. It, so much of that has to do with how many people get in these bad relationships with food, because just like drinking, you may not be an alcoholic, but you have a bad relationship with alcohol. You may not have an eating disorder, but you have a bad relationship with food because you there's morality attached to it or something, you know, and there's not there. It's just food. That has been my biggest lesson. And when I've really let go of all labels, when I'm craving vegetables, I'm craving vegetables, which tends to be pretty often. If you had, I remember my therapist was like, just eat whatever you want. I was like, ha, I'm going to be eating shit all day long. She's like, just <laughs> try it, try it and see what happens. If you literally have a feast of desserts at night in the morning, if you're truly listening to your body, you will not want an ounce of sugar. You'll be thirsty, lethargic. You'll feel hangover, hungover. So intuitive eating is people think intuitive eating, which is my practice is to eat whatever you want. It is eating whatever you want, but it is listening to your body. And it doesn't always want junk. It actually wants variety. You'll in the summer, I crave smoothies. I crave juices in the winter. I, I crave stews and, but really getting out of this, like healthy, unhealthy, has been a game changer for me and for a lot of people in recovery, because then even like you said, people at gyms and stuff are like, oh, I need to eat healthy and yada, yada. And if you don't have a problem, totally respectable. But for many people, that is almost like the gateway entry thing to an, to a difficult relationship with food is like, thinking that you are bad for having certain foods, thinking that you're not disciplined enough, that you don't have willpower. That's literally just like the booze. It's crazy. I will say that I'm actually very surprised on a lighter note that we've made it this far into the interview. And I've heard you say certain foods like um, Cheetos, burgers, <laughs> uh, chips, pizza, 
smoothies, vegetables, and I'm still yet to hear you say ice cream, which I don't think you made it one <laughs> interview on your podcast without talking about ice cream. Like I thought for sure, or uh, on, on a joking matter, hopefully that's not like a trigger, is it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Love ice cream. I would say you can't use the word junk food in your house because I can only imagine like with your kids having you for a mom, I can only imagine they probably like want to eat ice cream for breakfast the way I hear you talk about it. You know, and that's, I'm scared with the kids, you know, cause part of me does want to be like, oh, I need to feed them healthy. And the other part is I have all types of foods at home. Obviously I have a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, but I also have like freaking goldfish and Oreo cookies and they teach me, you know, I'll make a plate and sometimes they'll have the broccoli before they have the Oreo. Like I almost experiment with them. They truly, we, we eat intuitively, intuitively when we're young, we kind of get detached from that, like our body cues. Um, so it's been pretty cool. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, we could spend hours talking about eating disorder stuff, but I, I basically decided to stop drinking because I felt like it was just the same as with the food. And I already knew where I was going to end up if I continued to drink the way that I was drinking. And I just knew like, this is going to end bad. I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I just had this like really strong gut feeling of like, this is not what you're supposed to be doing this is going to end not good. This is going to end in a disaster. Who knows what? And you have too much to lose. Like you've worked so hard. So I immediately started listening to recovery elevator when I started to get, to, started trying to get sober, um, started listening to the podcast, joined the cafe Ari community. Uh, I love making friends. So that really worked for me. And yeah, I mean, I found my people there and for me, it's just been amazing seeing the parallels between all addictions and really focusing on mental health. You know, Paul, who is my counterpart on the show, talks, you know, his his recovery journey is taking him more on spirituality, music. He loves healing through sound. And I feel like my, where I'm at is I really just like talking about it and being an advocate for it. And addressing not just the drinking, but really addressing just like the importance of mental health. Young people, you know, I have kids, so I'm really motivated to like start them young. It's harder to like change someone when they're older than to like change the narrative when they're young and hopefully have them have a little bit more awareness that what we had and a little bit more tools than what we had. So it's been pretty crazy. I mean, like I said, sometimes I feel pretty defeated because I've been doing this for so long. But also I love it and it's really cool that I get to talk to people on the daily to share on our podcast. I mean, we're getting close to 8 million listeners. It's pretty That's crazy. Insane. That's insane. Um, it's There's insane. So many. So, I mean, you're, you're what over, you're like over 300 episodes deep too. I mean, you guys are, you guys are kicking absolute ass. I mean, I'm, I'm looking here cause I want to get an exact number. Um, but shit, you're 350 as of three days ago, the 352nd episode just came out. It's absolutely it's insane. And I've listened to 348 of them. So <laughs> I mean, amazing. Yeah, I listen. I listen on like 1.8 speed. And so like I like power through them. But uh, I, I just uh, many's a drives where I'm just like powering through the episodes and just hearing too. And it's really cool to see the uh, the progression of the podcast as well. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about your drinking. So it seems like you, you knew enough about yourself when you were dealing with your eating disorder that you were able to kind of like 
catch the drinking problem before it got really, really bad. And, you know, like I always tell people too, rock bottom isn't, it's not a, a destination. It's not an event. It's not something happening. You don't have to end up in jail. You don't have to end up homeless. You don't have to end up with your spouse uh, giving you an ultimatum. It's when you realize that enough was enough. Um, I always say it's, it's, you know, it's when you stop rock bottom is just when you stop fucking digging. So uh, what was that like? I'm, I'm assuming you didn't, you didn't put yourself into a facility that you kind of like grab things on your own, but kind of walk us through that like first day of no drinking, what it was like for you. Did you wake up and say, Hey, today enough is enough. I'm not looking back. Was it like, did you kind of struggle? Like how was that first day and that first few days? Like, how did you feel and what was your thought process and, and what got you through it? What helped you get sober? If there was any programs other than, cafe re like what was your day one yeah you know so i've been in and out of aa for a handful of meetings because of my dad like i said i usually go to his anniversaries and i know what the 12-step program has been for years because i also have gone to al-anon when he was struggling so i just i'm familiar with these pro programs since i was a kid you know because i was a kid of an alcoholic and then um as i'm older I love the adult children of alcoholics workbooks through AA because I find a lot of my, just a lot of the stuff that I need to work on there. So previously to getting sober, I was very familiar and I've always loved meetings. I just, they're definitely not part of my day to day I'll go, but I, I, I have even at the beginning, you know, I've never pursued them. And I felt like it's because I've had a very strong support system. You know, I've been going to therapy for years and I have my recovery friends. So my, like that, my day one, what the one that I remember is not even the one that is because I had like streaks of sobriety. So I, I think I went 60 days and then another time, 120 and then 70 and then a hundred and then the streak that I'm on now. So I started to really like do inventory on myself and, and ask myself, like, why am I going back? You know, I think I was very scared of the unknown of changing dynamics of changing relationships. And I have a huge fear of abandonment. So I just didn't want to mess with the status quo, which was kind of mirroring what we said when I was young, like, if everyone around me is happy, then I'm happy. And, um, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I, I felt like I always needed to I always knew what I needed to do, you know, like take care of yourself, go and exercise, connect with people in recovery. And that's how my day ones usually started. It was almost just like this feeding into my BS or not, whether I made it through the day, like feeding into my fear or my excuses, but it was simply like following through with a decision. I feel like having, you know, if you're listening and you're early, like having two, three, five days sober even if I went back to day one, at least I had the belief, like I can do this because I've already done one day, two days, three days. And it's only a matter of adding and repeating, which like I've always believed in like the compound effect, like just get the reps in, just repeat it. So for me, I know it's not the case for many people. It was more about that decision than what I did in that day, you know, cause I could do all the right things. I could go to an AA meeting. I could connect with people in recovery. I could go and work out and eat healthy. But if I hadn't fully made the decision that I wasn't going to drink that day, I was still going to drink that day. Like for me, like I said, some people it's out of their control. It's more of a physical addiction. It's their story. But for me, 
which I think a lot of the gray area drinkers or people who maybe don't consider themselves alcoholic alcoholics fall on. It's that it's, it's hard. It's easy. And it's hard because it boils down just to truly committing to the decision and not giving into your own BS. You know, that's what it was for me. So so when you I, I woke up like on I've, December, when you woke up on December 18th, 2018, cause that's your date, right? So when you yeah. woke up that day, cause you said you had a, a bunch of streaks, you know, a hundred here, 70 there, 120. Um, was anything different that day than, than the other days or, and also like, was your goal when you woke up that day and you decided you're not drinking? Cause now it's been over three years, uh, going on well, or coming up on three years. Uh, so when you woke up that day, uh, did you try and tell yourself like, all right, I'm going to do my best to never drink again. Cause I know we can't tell ourselves I'm never drinking again, because if you think it's just going to be that easy, you're setting yourself up for failure. Totally. But did, did you try and tell yourself like, I'm going to do my best to never drink again. Or was the goal? Like, let me just go a couple months, see if I feel better. And then you make it a couple months and then you extend it a couple months. Like what was your goal that morning? Yeah, it's weird. I, I don't think I had a, a goal. I knew I, I do know this. So my dad is sober and we go to Mexico for Christmas every single year. And it's a sober home because my mom, even though she's not in recovery, she's never been a fond of drinking. So if I'm not mistaken, we were leaving and I knew that it would be easy when I was there because here's my husband's also sober and he was still drinking at the time. It's so easy when you're in an environment where it's, you're either enabling each other or protecting each other. It was more like, should we just have a beer? You know, like I was, we had a lot of that happening at that time where even though we weren't like in a crappy yet place, it was so easy for us to just be like, Oh, like almost like the dieting thing for many people. Oh, we're still, we'll start next week. You know, next week, you know, we would so easily do that. Let's just go out and have a pizza and beers. So I knew that if I went home, that wasn't going to be an option when I, that, that day. And that did really help me because we were there for like two weeks. So that momentum, I remember I had these longer streaks and then I always noticed that getting, it was getting harder to get the streaks. And also it was getting past the seven day mark, like getting past the weekend. So I thought, okay, if we get down there and we're going to be there for two weeks, I get over like the hump of what's usually harder or what is getting harder for me, which is the seven to 10, 10 day mark. Um, so that was super helpful. Uh, we didn't like hit up a meeting every day or anything, but just the environment that I was in was, was sober. And it, like my parents, like even on Christmas, we don't bring booze in the house. So that was definitely very protective being in that environment because it was truly before Christmas. If you think about it in terms of yeah. holidays, it's like shit, but it was only because I was going to a place where I knew that nobody else was going to be drinking. Unlike a lot of people where that's the hard date because that's when everyone's drinking in their family. So you were a blessed recipient of people, places, and things. And when <laughs> yes. you look at it, that aspect, and, and I can only imagine too, cause it's never easy, but I could imagine it's probably slightly easier when you're going to be surrounded by people that you love, that love you, that care for you. And especially when there is no booze there, it's not like mom and dad are having a glass of wine or a couple of drinks. And they're like, don't totally. worry, Odette, we love you and you'll be okay. It's like, dad's in recovery and he knows he has a problem. So there's no booze in the house. So as long as you're in that house, even if you wanted to drink, you can't, you actually have to go outside and you have to go do something to obtain those booze. It's not just like you can give in and go grab one out of the fridge if you're not feeling it anymore. So 
that probably helped you out a little bit um, or even a lot. Now, uh, is is your husband when you said he's sober, is he in recovery or does he just not drink? No, he's in recovery. I mean, to be honest and like being completely transparent with listeners, the reason why I think I've been a good fit at Recovery Elevator and why Paul and I are a good team is that it is so important for us to at Recovery Elevator to redefine recovery. Like a lot of the stuff that I consider to be part of my recovery, my dad, who's in recovery, frowns upon, you know? So it is, he's in recovery according to my definition of recovery. You know, he's gone to AA meetings with my dad. Now they have their own relationship and love each other, but he has gone to do ayahuasca. He goes to therapy with me every week. That was a crazy uh, his, episode, by the way, listening to Paul talk about that. Yeah. So same. Yeah, exactly. So my husband has more of an alternative way of recovering that I consider being in recovery, but I don't know if a traditional person in addiction would consider it. So we're both alcohol-free and also active in, in many other modalities that maybe I think the world is moving us in that direction, but that I know for a fact that there's still some like, are you truly in recovery? And honestly, it's just, we don't, I don't really attach to even the No, the for word. sure. I would personally but identify that. I would identify that as recovery because more so totally. like, I guess- Like growing and like calling yourself out, growing, yeah. being challenged, uh, working towards, you know, improving your relationships, your defects of character, all of that. Yes. Um, with a more, I mean, we're also in California, more of like a hipsterish approach. Like we always say, like nature is our higher power. We, as a family, we spend a ton of time in nature. John loves surfing and I can tell what it does to his brain. Like I can tell he always has said that is, that's his therapy, even though he also goes to therapy, but it is, I guess for now, I can just call it a more like of an alternative way of recovering, but definitely being in that mindset of calling you out on your bullshit and like working on, on being a better person. And like knowing that also knowing that you'll never get there, that you're not working towards like a perfect me, that you're just going to be in this because we're changing all the time. Right. How close are you to the waves for him? 10 minutes. Oh man, he's probably got to love that. Like I, people say runner's high is a real thing. And I mean, that was a whole, um, I've heard multiple debates on that, on whether, whether it's actually a high or if it's this or it's that, but like, I can only imagine, like, if you believe runner's high is a thing, then he's probably catching like surfers high or, you know, wait, high tide, higher, high, high tide, tide high. I don't know. I feel like there's a word play and a, a hoodie there somewhere. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, that's, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, the, originally when I was asking that is just because, you know, some people, they might be in, in recovery, which it seems like John is, but then there's some people like those spouses who it's someone more. So like, I guess your mom is a good example who isn't in recovery, doesn't identify as that just isn't a fan of it. And especially if her husband's going to be sober, she's just not drinking, not having it in the house. Like, you know, like, and there are people out there too, like their, their husband or their wife is in, in recovery or at identifies an, as an alcoholic. So they don't drink at home. They don't drink when they're with them, but maybe they have like three beers a year on the days they go out with their friends to go watch a football game totally. and go grab some wings. And maybe they have a beer that night and yeah. by no means do they have a problem. They're just pretty much sober because they just, they want to support their significant other or their spouse. And they just want to be there for them and help them. So that's, that's really cool that you have each other, uh, 
in that way. Um, so let's, let's kind of get into uh, fitness a little bit as well. So what are, I mean, from what I know, from what I've heard you talk about on the podcast is when you have a guest who is really, really strived in the fitness or really like, I guess you can consider like your typical, like gym rat or uh, obsessed with running. Like I am, I would hear you talk about running and your routines, going to the gym, trying to get up early, but what is like the health and fitness world like for you? What do you personally like to do? Yeah. Uh, I actually love running as well. I just completed my first marathon a couple of weeks ago, which was, Oh, let's talk. Let's talk. All right. Where, yeah. what was your time? What shoes did you wear? Cause now I'm going to nerd out. Cause I didn't yeah, even really think running was your thing. Yeah. I love running. I've been running for probably 12 years and it's really cool for me because I feel like it's one of those sports where you can peak older. <laughs> like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, oh, like a hundred percent, like it's, it's proven. So the greatest I just, I'm marathoners like, yes. in the it, and the longer the distance, um, the, I believe that the older you can be and really like peak as far as performance, like five K's and 10 K's that's a young man's game, but marathons and ultras, those are, I mean, you look at the best in the world, they're all in their like thirties. Look at the best marathoners in the world. The world records are set by people in their like early, mid, late thirties. Yeah, totally. So it was awesome. It was my first one. My only goal was to complete it. I'd done probably like seven half marathons before, and I just really wanted to get that full marathon in. I signed up 2020. So it was obviously canceled because of COVID. So it was a year after. And here in San Diego, I did the rock and roll. I ended at four hours and 25 minutes, I think. Um, You beat me on my first one. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was a really rough course. The last four miles are uphill. So you end on the hardest note, but I was smiling the whole time. My family, people in recovery were there from recovery elevator. It was just a celebration. Cause I mean, I'd been training for months and I mean, that's, that's my time. I, I'm not great at still meditation. I always say like running really helps me with meditation, I get lost. Like I really do get in the zone. So love running. I also love biking. We have a Peloton and I'm obsessed with it as well. So cycling and running are probably my favorites as well as hiking. Last year we did Grand Canyon, like rim to rim. And we do you want to say, you say your Peloton name? Cause I know we have a bunch of listeners that are on Peloton. Maybe they can jump on and throw you a high five. Yeah, totally. My Peloton name is the Harmony Lane, which is also my like Instagram tag and everything else. So see me, add me, I'll add you back. But yeah, I love working out. I mean, it also directly affects my mental health, my depression, like I can feel the difference in my brain. So um, I definitely do it for mental health. I feel like I used to do it for when I was in my eating disorder, I used to do it to lose weight. And then I stopped exercising while I was really getting into recovery to make sure that I was doing it for the right reasons. Then I felt like I was doing it for health, like physical health. And it's really recently shifted to like, I'm actually doing it for mental health. Like if I have to be completely honest, it is the main driver of why I do it. Uh, and I love it. Like I, I love exercise and working out and it really just changes my, my overall mood of the day. So it's amazing. Absolutely. I, I love running and working out for mental health. One of the things I used to tell myself in the beginning and I didn't take that gap that you did to make sure I was doing it for the right reasons, but I did have a point in early sobriety where I wanted to make sure 
But anyway, when I would come home, especially in like the first year of my sobriety, when I'd be having a really shitty day and I would want to go pick up a drink, I would start to tell myself, I'd be like, all right, uh, go for a run or go to the gym and work out for an hour and think about like anything good that'll happen if you pick up a drink. And if you can figure out something in your life that'll get better after you pick up a drink, then you can go talk to Mallory about it, which is my wife. You can go talk to her and then, you know, maybe you can consider picking up a drink and seeing it, blah, blah, blah. And I would always make it like a couple miles into a run or 30 minutes into a workout. And before, you know, I'm like running at a faster pace or I'm lifting heavier than I normally do. And I'm just working out that aggression, that stress, and I'm just feeling better. And it's like, by then I forgot what those problems are. And I've, I've told other people this too. It's like, try and do something similar. Even if like working out isn't your thing, try and take an hour or two and try and think of what'll get better. And if you can actually think of something that'll get better, then maybe you can, maybe you can reevaluate that, but I'm still yet me personally, or anybody I know still yet to think of anything that'll get better in life. If you go pick up a drink or a drug, um, when things are bad, because I mean, nothing, nothing does get better. So that's really cool to have something for a mental health outlet to just go out and make yourself feel better. Uh, when you ran that marathon, I've heard, I've heard things about the rock and roll marathon in San Diego. That's a like normally, at least before COVID, they normally get a pretty like massive turnout, don't they? Yeah. You know, it was, I've done that half marathon, the rock and roll half marathon, and it was a smaller crowd for sure. There was a lot of the parts of the course that were lonely, but it was, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, did you follow like a, uh, an online training plan? Did you put something together or did you just kind of like, how, how did you approach? Yeah. You know, I'm very consistent and I knew for a fact that signing up for the race, I, I knew I just needed to get my, my body comfortable with running at least like three hours before the race or three to three and a half hours. And I think that old Odette would have like been like, I need a training plan and I need to follow it to the T. And really in the last two years, I've really shifted into, I used to be so disciplined and so controlling. Like it was so, I used to be proud of it. And I've really, really started to detach from that and really started to do things from a place of joy. So I took it super easy and I thought I was crazy until I read and listen to a couple of runners, like professional runners. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not the only one, you know, almost like food, the runs like intuitive, as long as I had, like, I need to get these miles in this week, but I didn't have a structure. I just knew that I needed to get to 20 miles. And then I would taper down three weeks before the race. I would get out on the weekends, uh, run only three times a week, which is not tradition. Normally it's like four to five. Um, and then you I would do cross do training. Three. Yeah, I would do, I would do cross training on the other days. And truly I was listening to an ultra runner speak on rich roll. I forget her name. She's like, I wake up, have my coffee. And that's when I decide what I'm going to do that day because I check in with my body. And so it was weird. Like I had that big goal, but I've really, even outside of the marathon. And I think recovery has gifted me. This I have really welcomed flexibility into my life while also understanding the importance of consistency and discipline. I think I was able to do this because I was already in a habit of working out every day. So it was just adding, knowing how much mileage I needed to get to, but I've really liked that flexibility, even like with work. Like I used to think that I had to earn my rest or earn my food or earn my love. And I think it finally has clicked 
lately in the last, like I said, year or two as a, like an unexpected perk of sobriety or recovery is that like, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I just have to be myself and do things when I want to do them. Like I said, while maintaining those goals, that consistency, that discipline, but I feel like I'm in a really good flow of like accountability with flexibility. And that came into my training and I really enjoyed the race. What I, I entered my name in the lottery for Chicago next year, and I would love to run a sub four, but still like joy is at the forefront of everything I do. And it has changed everything. If you get accepted into Chicago and, and we definitely need to, uh, we need to like exchange numbers or something after this podcast. Cause I'm obsessed with running. And right now my goal, um, I just ran unofficially. I got a sub four officially for race standards. I got like a four hour and 26 second because, uh, I took, I took some bad tangents. And so I ended up running 26.4. So like my, mm. my, uh, watch and my app and all that gave me credit for like a three fifty eight. But as far as like the official race results, it was like 26 seconds over four hours. But, um, oh. there's it's, it, and it's definitely very, very doable right now. I'm trying to get a sub three is my next goal. I just broke my ankle, uh, six and a half weeks ago. So I'm like recovering and in physical therapy for that. Uh, but it's, it's definitely doable. I know you can do it, especially if you got a 420 on your first one by doing three, three days a week. Like, I know you like to take things, uh, very like chill. Um, but even if you like figure out, like, look at, even look at a plan and just kind of tweak it to what works better with you. So you're not taking up the stress. You can definitely do it. And I tell people all the time too, cause I'm also a, a run coach. Like I don't have like a ton of clients or anything, but I am, uh, an online virtual run coach. And I tell people like, you can run a marathon on three days a week training. Like if you want to take it very, very serious and you have very specific goals, you might want to look at four or maybe even five days, but you can run a marathon on three days a week training. If you block it out at least 12 to 16 weeks in advance and just get in one short recovery run, try and do one like speed runner tempo run and do one long run, progressively getting longer every few weeks, take back, kick back like a recovery week but just increase it a little bit, you know, 10% and try and get in like a, a 20, a 20 to 22 mile run, like three weeks or so before the race, two or three weeks before the race, and then take in like some nice taper time and enjoy yourself. But it's definitely very doable on three days. A yeah, week. it's totally doable. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think if the last four miles hadn't been a total bitch of a hill, I may have gotten closer to four. Like that was hard ending on that note. It's okay. It you're allowed freeway. to do your horn. You work hard. That I think, hard you know, work. I was tracking myself and I was like 402, 402, 402. Then we hit the hills and like, it started increasing, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you I were also in uncharted territory. I mean, and I don't know about your training, but if your longest run was three or three and a half hours, I'm assuming you'd probably, you know, that was probably like 20 ish miles. 20 or so. miles. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you're now running You're once, once you hit over 20 miles, you know, you're now in uncharted territory. So it's like, that's, that's all the adrenaline. That's why you never really run more than 20 or 22 miles in a training plan. Um, because that is that, that extra four miles is what, like, if you train properly and safely and whatnot, your body, the adrenaline, especially when you're in a live race atmosphere, like it'll carry you that extra couple miles and, and totally. you'll power through. But I mean, you're now at a distance you've never done before and you're finishing uphill. So definitely that's, that's beast mode shit. And it's something that's a huge, huge accomplishment. And that's, that's super awesome. I love that we're talking running now. Cause I was not expecting that. 
Um, mm. When you are going to the gym, because I know you said you do that as well. What kind of uh, cross training do you like to do? I love doing, like I said, cycling. I love doing boot camps and just weight work. Uh, I Our gym is my garage. Like I love nice. going to classes, but also love the ability to do stuff while the kids are still sleeping. That's the first like reason why we got some equipment at home was when they were younger. Like I wanted to be proactive during their nap times. And I love running outside. I mean, we live in San Diego, so hiking is a huge cross training way for me. We just get out. We have a monthly hiking meetup with recovery elevator here in SoCal. And those are usually pretty fun, but yeah, I, I like trying everything. I mean, except surfing, it's too cold for me in that water for this Mexican <laughs> girl, but I just like moving my body. Like I really understand what it does for my emotions and my brain. And I I'm, I'm always wanting to just be active and try new things. Turn, turn mommy wine time into mommy grind time. I love yeah. it. Does, uh, does John get out, uh, running with you or on the bike or does he, does he just stick to the waves? He is definitely a cyclist. Uh, he's done a couple of races. He's done a half Ironman. So he's been a very active guy since I met him surfing's his like love. And he also loves golfing, but we're both pretty active. Like it is a, we, we think about it often and like, it is definitely something that we're proud of. That is part of our habit that we know a lot of people struggle with, like getting on getting that momentum going. And for us, it's just, we really like it and we're both morning people. So we get up super early. We also go to bed pretty early, but it helps that we're kind of on the same schedule. We're both our best in the morning. So we'll get up, work out, get to work and then crash early. Shit. So he's, he's sober and he has some half Ironmans under his belt. Now you seem like a very smart woman. Can you guess what my next question is going to be? Am I going to do an, an, an Iron Man? No, no. I, I was going to say, are you, can, can you, can you put a little whisper in his ear to get him on the show as well here? I would love to oh, talk to course. him. Of course. Yeah. He's awesome. He's been on uh, Trisha's podcast, recovery, happy hour and recovery elevator. He's very charming. My run coach was actually on recovery happy hour um, as well. She's over on the West coast. She's in Bellingham. She was on recovery happy hour. That, uh, that podcast came to an end, didn't it? Yeah, she she I think it was three or four seasons and she wrapped it up. Yeah, I um that was one of the ones I listened to a few episodes here and there. Uh it was it was really cool. But yeah, we gotta we gotta get him on the show here as well. That'd be super awesome. I actually just interviewed a guy uh, a couple days ago and he uh he said his goal was to do one Iron Man in his entire life, and now he's training for like his fourth. So God it's bless like the it. thing about it's the thing about endurance sports It's just once you start, it's hard to not want to keep doing it. Yeah. There's something about putting yourself through that pain and whatnot that it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess you can say it's addicting and you want to just keep getting back to it, but it's a good addiction. And it's, it's something, uh, it's something that's really, it's a, it's a blessing. So, and I think it like parallels recovery like you have the mile where you feel like you're flying high and then a mile where you feel like death like it literally is like some days in recovery and ultimately you know you can make it you just have to keep going for sure now do you have any do you have any future goals anything that you want to do in the in the fitness world um and i guess we'll uh, we'll let you get out of here shortly but do you have any any goals as far as uh, fitness or any podcast, anything you see happening with recovery elevator in the future, anything you want to share immediately, feel free to follow that up with 
any plugging where any of our followers can find mm-hmm. you other than I'm, I'm, I know we've said some Instagram handles and we've said recovery elevator like 57 times already. Um, but uh, yeah, like what are your goals and, and where can people find you and throw all the plugs you want to throw? Oh, thanks. Uh, I'd love to do a Ragnar next. I know those are less mileage, but it seems like such a fun thing to do as a team. I think there's a couple here in, in California where you go from like city to city, hop in a van, and then each person has a different leg. So you do your leg, then the next person gets off in case you're not familiar with a Ragnar if you're listening. But it's almost like a relay race um, that you do as a team. And I love that. I mean, I, I do love endurance, but I also have like being athletic is not my job. You know, I have a job and I have kids and my body, like I have to take such good care of like my aches, you know, like I feel like I would love to do ultra races and and get crazy, but I also that all that takes time and training and all that does take a toll on the body. And like, I want to be able to run around with my kids. Like my goals are to enjoy life. I think if I get into the Chicago marathon, I'd love to PR, but it's crazy how I think I'm such a driven person, but the shift that I've been talking about for like 20 minutes now, I just want to do less and enjoy more in a non-mediocre way, like in a way where I'm not pleasing other people, pleasing myself and really shifting my attention. I'm working with my therapist in terms of like, what are my values and make sure that every decision that I make is bringing me closer to my values. And a lot of that doesn't look like all the things that I should be doing, right? I should be signing up to mommy cookie exchange and PTA meeting at school and yada, yada. And I'm really getting good at saying no and being like, no, you know, I only have 24 hours in a day. I want to enjoy them. I just want to make memories that I had like 13 years of my life that are kind of a blur because I was so wrapped up in the obsession of my addiction that I want to claim my time back and I want to claim the clarity back. So you know, I feel like my goals look very different and I'm grateful and I'm blessed that I have a, a great job and, and like our family's doing great. So like I said, I don't want it to sound mediocre. I think it's just my definition of success has evolved so much where I just don't want to take life for granted anymore. I want to enjoy it. I want to have fun and relax. You know, I used to be so rigid and controlling. I just want to ease and it's finally getting a little bit easier. So now I want to be there for it. So yeah, run some races, see what happens. I, I just feel like also just flowing with the world and I know good things will come. I just, I'm a half as, uh, I'm a gal that thinks like the glass is always half full. So I'm just excited to see where this takes me. Recovery Elevator, if you want to listen to any podcast, The Harmony Lane is my personal account. I ha- like heavily focus on mental health and sobriety and running and yeah, shoot me an email. If you want to chat, I'm always happy to hear from people that are listening. It's Odette at recoveryelevator.com. And yeah, thanks for having me, Migs. Absolutely. Uh, last question we have for you before we let you go for our listeners that are out there um, for any people that might be struggling, who might be thinking about picking up a drink or a drug today, or, you know, in this case, food or having bad thoughts in their mind with their own mental health, or for someone who is already sober um, or, or not sober yet and needs to hear something to help put the drink or the drug down or make the next right step or the first right step. For any of those people, for someone like you who has been 
clean and sober for a little over three years and dealing with stuff for a lot of your time and being around as many people in recovery as you have, uh, what kind of, what, what word of wisdom or what little advice can you give for these people to help them either not pick up the drink or the drug or to help them put it down today? Yeah. You know, this is, this is borrowed, but just ask yourself different questions. And the question that I think will always get us unstuck. And like I said, it's borrowed. It's like, what does the most beautiful version of your life look like? And if you are feeling any of the things that Migs just said, it's definitely not what you're living through right now. That's not your most beautiful vision of what your life could be. So just know that it's out there and it's different to what you're experiencing. You just really have to get out here. We're waiting on the other side. You just have to get out here and, and ask for help because it truly is a decision and knowing that there's something different than what you're living right now out here waiting. Awesome. I absolutely love it. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's everything we have today, unless we missed anything that you wanted to cover. Um, but other than that, Odette, I sincerely want to thank you for taking the time to be with us, uh, today. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. If you, if you ever need any help, if there's anything I can ever do for you, any way I can return the favor, please let me know. If you're ever looking for a gap filler on recovery elevator, I'm obsessed with the podcast. I would love to be on there anytime you ever need anyone. Um, I just, I love everything you're doing. Just keep working hard, keep grinding. It's, it's truly inspirational. It's motivational. You and Paul are just doing such awesome things over there. But on behalf of all of our listeners, everybody on the Facebook group, all of our social media outlets, Odette, we want to thank you for taking the time with us today. We want you to, uh, we just ask that you continue staying healthy, continue staying fit. And Odell, uh, Odette, girl, tell us how you're doing it. One day at a time. We love it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit Odette. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T. You can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.